0: 1986, February, was the month. Janet Jackson, little brother of Michael Jackson, the pop star, was trying to break out from under the long shadow that her brother was casting over her career. And she released this album called Control. And It's interesting that she made some statements about this release. It was the Control album that was really about what I wanted to do, she said. And even in the song Control, she's speaking at the beginning and she says, this is a story about control, my control, control of what I say, control of what I do. And this time I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. Doesn't matter what generation you're from, this message comes loud and cre- clear. The world says, take control. Take control. And control was supposed to be empowering. It was supposed to make Janet feel powerful. And... Not only are we supposed to take control, the world says, but then stay in control. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Do you ever feel like you might be a controlling person? I ran across a quiz on a website. You know, just like these quizzes that like take this quiz and find out which Disney princess you're most like. I didn't take that one, but I know that's a thing. But... The control-free quiz, I'm just going to give you five of the questions, just as yes or no, just kind of see maybe this would, might, might kind of show you a little bit of maybe this, is a, maybe, maybe something that you wrestle with a little bit. Do you help other people drive to tell them what route to take, when to turn, when to park, where to park, remind them what the traffic light is doing and how, whether it's changed or not? Yeah. Do you devote a lot of attention and energy to keeping your personal environment organized? Do you give people a lot of shoulds and oughts and coulds and unsolicited advice and suggestions, constructive criticisms? Do you have a lot of personal rules, routines, rituals, and ceremonies? No, I always do it this way. There's some people that shop at exactly the same time at exactly the same store every single week. God bless you. Routine is not bad, it's just true. Do you insist on being right, having things done your way and having the final word? Well, I think if we're honest, we all have a wrestle with wanting to control things. But one of my smart counselors along the way explained to me that control is actually just an illusion. You actually can't control things that you think you can control. And when you try to seize control over people, things, circumstances, the fruit is really awful. Solomon, the third king in our series, we've talked about Saul, we've talked about David, and now we're finishing with Solomon. Solomon concludes in this book called Ecclesiastes that he wrote, that you can't control your life. So you should stop trying. He points to living an open-handed life and focusing on living in the moment and really enjoying both the good and the bad that we run across because they're all gifts from God. This morning we're going to talk a little bit about control and this issue in our lives that rivals our trust with God. I'm going to ask God, would you just put a spotlight on my heart? Show me where I wrestle with this so that I can trust you to provide and protect me more. I often believe that, as we'll see It's our fear that drives control in our life. So as we look at these passages, my prayer is that we'll surrender more to the Holy Spirit and then walk in more self-control in our lives. So we have seen Solomon. He possesses incredible wisdom, but just because he has incredible wisdom doesn't mean he's actually experiencing meaning and purpose in his life. I know a lot of people who are very intelligent, but it doesn't mean that they've actually found any kind of meaning or purpose in their life. People who are very talented, who lack purpose. People who are very famous, who lack purpose. And certainly people with much wealth, and they're still struggling to find purpose. In this book called Ecclesiastes, Solomon lists just about everything that he's tried to try to figure out how to be satisfied. And he's basically summed up the pursuit of the meaning of life in this book. He says, here's where it didn't come from. It didn't come from pursuing wisdom, even though he did it. I didn't actually give him significance. Laughter and silliness and wine and food and building projects, palaces and vineyards and parks for his people and reservoirs and irrigation systems, Owning slaves, having choirs that sang to him, gold and silver in heaps, promotions being promoted to the king, being famous across the entire world. And last but not least, yes, a thousand wives. Somehow that was supposed to be leaving him satisfied. But he makes it very clear in this book that the eye never tires of seeing. In other words, you can never get enough. Your appetite is never fully satisfied. Why? Because this, these things are good things, but they are not purpose and meaning in life. He finds all these things in his book, Ecclesiastes, meaningless. A chasing after the wind, he says in chapter one. You ever tried to chase the wind? So let's look at the Bible project overview for the book of Ecclesiastes, because I think it helps us to get the big picture On how Solomon is really saying, you cannot control your life. You must simply fear God and obey his commands. Take a look.
1: We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic, that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life.
2: But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp, middle-aged critic, and he says,
3: You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And
1: that's a phrase he uses a lot in this
2: book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices.
1: So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the
2: one who's collected the critic's words and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and
1: gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic?
2: Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down. And he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time. Or as the critic says,
3: Generations come and generations go. But the Earth, it's been here long before us, and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago, and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. So
2: on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born. And then they die and form planets, which orbit new stars.
1: And those planets, they change over time and eventually burn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time.
2: Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation that we are all going to die.
3: Humans face the same fate as the animals, death. All people, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, Those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not, they all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing.
2: And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature.
1: So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause and effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded.
2: But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance,
3: or in his words, the race doesn't always go to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is
2: that you can't really control anything in life. It's just way too
1: unpredictable. So if I want to master life,
2: then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious.
1: It takes one shape and before you know it, it takes a new shape.
2: And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through
1: your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly.
2: Now our modern translations have lost the metaphor and they usually translate Hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing. It's disorienting and uncontrollable. So what are we
1: supposed to do with all
2: of this? Well, surprisingly, the critic first of all acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it is a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the
1: Lord. Really? I mean, he just said that does not guarantee success.
2: But he knows it is the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that is your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal
1: with people that you care about. The simple things in life.
2: Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes.
1: Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places.
2: And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. He doesn't want you to lose hope. He wants to make you humble, into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the hevel and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to
1: fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, there's one more voice in the Bible's wisdom literature, and that's the book of Job. And he
2: will bring us the final, much-needed perspective on our journey into wisdom.
1: So, the book of
0: Ecclesiastes has a bit of a dark feel to it. If you read it, make sure you tell a friend so you don't go down the rabbit hole and we lose you. But in the midst of it, Really, Solomon is trying to bring us to a place of humility, to realize that we cannot find meaning and the meaning of life and purpose on our own by trying to satisfy it by filling our heart with the things of this world. That only God truly satisfies. That's why his conclusion is to fear God and obey His commands. Here's how the book ends, Ecclesiastes 12. Verses 8 and following. Everything is hevel, meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying them and classifying them. Verse 10. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful. But helpful, their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick, which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Now, this is my final conclusion, he says. Fear God and obey his commands. For this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So what Solomon is saying is, since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Stop worrying, but choose to enjoy the simple things in life the good and the bad, because both are gifts from God. So in this book, the goal being to bring us to a place of humility and trust in God, because trust and control are on opposite ends of the spectrum. The antidote for control is trusting God that he will provide and protect for you, just like he says he will. His aim is, the author's aim is for hope and trust, faith to rise, which is what we so desperately need in this season. And to understand that life does have meaning even when you can't make sense of it. And that one day God will judge all things and bring justice, even if we don't see it now, which so many of us really struggle with seeing injustice in the world and think, God, how can you allow this someday God will right all the wrongs. So says this last verse. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So what's our proper response? To fear the Lord, to worship him, to see him for who he really is and obey his commands. Obedience is an extension of trust. You only obey when you trust someone. If I told you, here's your parachute, jump out of the plane. For you to obey that, you would have to trust me, right? In the same way, when we obey God, we're saying, God, I trust you that you will provide and protect me, provide for and protect me. So when we don't really honor God, when we don't obey his commands, when we don't trust him, we seek to control. And let's talk about control a little bit. Like Janet Jackson, all of us struggle with trying to be in control. I just feel like there's three words that I got during, the, during worship that I wanted to give you. I think there's someone here who's felt controlled by someone else. Therefore, now you're trying to control others. And just because you were mistreated, you need to question whether you should keep stepping out of that. Secondly, there's a leader here who's afraid they're going to lose their position. So you're controlling others and you're not empowering Like you're literally afraid you're going to lose that position or job. And third, I think that there's somebody um, trying to fix someone else by dictating exactly how they need to live moment by moment, day by day, and hoping that maybe if I just control you enough, you're going to learn how to do it for yourself, and it's not working and you need to stop. Our kings, as we're, we're completing this series, I would be remiss not to refer to three quick examples from our kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, because they wrestled with this just as we do. Instead of trusting God for his provision and protection, they take matters into their own hands, controlling people and things and circumstances. King Saul in 1 Samuel 13. Well, he's supposed to wait for the prophet to come to make the sacrifice. But he gets all freaked out. He's worried that he sees his guys deserting. He sees the numbers of Philistines. He's looking at his watch. He's wondering why Samuel's not there. So he puts his priest hat on and he decides to offer the sacrifice. Right when he's doing that, of course, Samuel shows up and says, because you've done this, the kingdom's going to be torn away from you. So he lets fear move him into control. David in 2 Samuel 11, this is the most famous example I could use. David manipulates and controls a married woman, brings him, her to the, Paris, uh, to the palace, sleeps with her, then arranges for her husband's death and a subsequent cover-up, all because he's fearful about his reputation in front of his people. Therefore, he controls every single person in the situation. The consequences? Well, it, his family begins to unravel. And for the rest of his life, his family is an absolute mess. Plus the child who is to be born also dies. Solomon, we're going to flip it around and show how Solomon was actually controlled. You see in 1 Kings 11, Solomon is controlled by his, well, several of his thousand wives who are putting pressure and pressure and pressure and pressure on him to put up some, Temples to some false gods. And so he caves in out of fear. Fear of what? I don't know. Fear of, you know, there's going to be a mutiny with his thousand wives. He is outnumbered, by the way. So fear leads him to be controlled. And the consequence is that his son then only rules over the tribe of Judah. And the rest of the tribes become Israel. Israel and Judah. And the kingdom is divided from then on. When we're afraid, we try to control things. And it's interesting that we have seen fear and control on display in our media, especially in the last few years. Politicians have used fear and control masterfully, and they continue to do so. Fear and control almost always travel together. They're like twins and as I thought about leaders and leadership, I thought, you know, true leadership is very empowering. It says, I, I want you to become who God wants you to be, and I want to I build a stage or a platform for you to be able to, to accomplish things that you could never accomplish on your own. And I want you to stand on my shoulders so you can do greater things. But control is the opposite. It says, you don't know what you're doing, so I have to tell you every single thing moment and micromanage you. True leadership is empowering, not controlling. Controlling leadership is actually slavery. So, by now, maybe you realize that there's some area in your life that you're struggling with control in, and it's probably some fear underneath, and at the end of the day, it ends up being a trust issue with God. The antidote to control is growing in your trust and your surrender to God. Letting go, surrendering to him. And the only godly form of control is called self-control. It's Danny Silk who said this, powerful people do not try to control other people. They know it doesn't work and that's not their job. Their job is to control themselves. I got enough to worry about here. I was looking at some websites about business and how business looks at self-control. Some business websites would say self-control includes balance, balance, calmness, determination, willpower, and confidence. That sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like the effort is you gotta work harder, it's all about working harder. But I'm here to tell you. This is not about working harder. If you leave this morning and you think, Andrew said you got to work a lot harder so I can get some stuff done so I can be self-controlled and be like Jesus. I'm going to work harder. That gummit? No, this is not. Self-control is not about working harder. It's actually about surrendering to God more because self-control can't be done in your own strength. It's only by the Holy Spirit's power that you can have self-restraint, willpower, the ability to do the right thing under pressure. How do I know this? Because Paul describes self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. There are some that would say self-control is actually the greatest of these virtues. I don't know if I can make that statement, but it's definitely worth thinking about. These are the fruits that are seen in our life when we're filled up, we're surrounded by, surrendered to the Holy Spirit, and we allow him to fill us up. Then this fruit is then shown in our lives or born in our lives. Paul talks about it also in 1 Timothy 1, 1.7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, that fear control thing, right? But of power and love and self-control or self-discipline. Depends on which version you want to read. Healthy people who are living the spirit-led life are growing in self-control. Not because they're working harder at it, but because they're surrendering more. Proverbs 25, 28, our friend Solomon says this A person without self control is like a city with broken down walls. In biblical times, if you had broken down walls, that meant that anybody could come in and raid and pillage and take and take advantage of you, that you were vulnerable to be a victim. Healthy people are growing in this spirit led life of growing in self control. Once again, Danny Silk, I just love what he has to say about this stuff, said this, self-control is not the ability to say no to bad things. That's sometimes what we think. Self-control is the ability to say yes to something so completely that all other options are eliminated. It's amazing when I pursue after God with all my heart When I really go after him and I'm spending time in my Bible, I'm spending time in prayer, I'm spending time doing the things that lead me into a place of worship. All of a sudden, the things that the world is tempting me with look more and more hollow and shallow. And I realize that they don't really satisfy. When my heart is is pushing into God, the things of the world look strangely dim in the words of the hymn. When you turn your eyes to Jesus. So what would it look like practically? Well, it's time for cartoons. This is the only way that I can think. Okay. Self-control. Found this little cartoon on the left. Self-control. Stop. Think. Act. It's a way for kids in the classroom to can, can figure out how to control themselves. I'm going to add one more to it. I think it's a pretty good list. Stop. Think. Pray. Act. Act. How many times do we do things without thinking or say things without thinking and it doesn't go well? Or even worse, we do things or say things without praying and asking God to help us understand is this really what he wants? Because we do so so much of, oh Lord, just bless my plans, amen. I don't know why he didn't bless my plans. Instead of consulting him first. What about the fruits of self-control in the middle here? Mastering of moods, watching your words, restraint of reactions, sticks to a schedule, manages, manages money wisely, maintains good health. That's not a complete list, but I'm already convicted. And I found this little gas gauge. And here's the way I want you to think about this. When you're being filled up with the Holy Spirit... You've got a lot of capacity to have self-control because it's the fruits of the Spirit. But when you're far from God, you haven't been spending any time with Him, why would you expect to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit and have the ability to say no to bad things or you say yes to, to God and good things? Where would self-control come from if you're on E? Well, If you choose to read through the book of Ecclesiastes this week, you're really going to find some rich passages, some proverbs, some beautiful verses that you'd recognize from weddings and other things, or songs from the 60s. Those things are all in there. But you're also going to see this macro concept that Solomon says, all the money, all the fame, all the comfort in the world doesn't leave you satisfied. It actually leaves you wanting more. The eye never tires of seeing, he says. The appetite is never, ever completely fulfilled. You're always hungry for more and more and more. Famous scientist Blaise Pascal said this There is a God shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus. And the truth is that maybe you're here and you have been trying a whole lot of things to try to put in that hole and they haven't satisfied. And this is what Solomon is saying in this book. You can try if you want to, but I've already supersized all those things and it, ain't, it, it isn't gonna satisfy. If you're a man and you think women are gonna satisfy you, yeah, I had a thousand wives, not, didn't work for me. You think money's the thing? I've had more money than I could ever know what to do with, and it didn't work. You think fame is really going to help you feel like somehow you're significant? Nope. Most famous king in the world, and he f- still felt empty, realizing these things are all like chasing after the wind. They're meaningless. And so if you are like Solomon, where you're like, I don't know, even know where to turn. In fact, you might even be here today or hearing my voice on the stream, and you're ready to end your life. Because you cannot find the meaning and purpose. I'm here to tell you, there is a God-shaped hole in your heart that only God will fill. And if you will surrender to Jesus, if you'll give your life to him and allow him to give you his life, he will change you from the inside out. He will give you purpose and meaning that no one can take away. You see, I gave my life to Jesus decades ago. And as I've learned to walk in the spirit and listen for his voice and watch to see where he's moving, every day is so adventurous. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. And I know that it's significant. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, you know, you're going to die and no one's going to remember you. And it's true. I don't hardly know anything about even my great grandparents or ancestors before that. But the truth is I have significance and I will be remembered and I'm leaving a legacy in heaven because I'm about my father's business and I am investing in the lives of others who will be with me for eternity. My life has eternal purpose and meaning because I'm here to build his kingdom and experience his life to the fullest. And so he's given me this life. It's the best decision I ever made that I surrendered my life and he gave me his that I recognize that Jesus came and lived a perfect life to show us that you could live under only the power of the Holy Spirit was sinless. Who was tempted in every way, yet didn't sin. That's what the Bible says. And yet he gives himself up and he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and give us the right to become his kids and be adopted in his family. He doesn't say dead. He actually rises from the grave to show that he has authority over life and death. And then he puts his hands out and invites any or all that would come to him to receive this gift of life. But just because he's offered it doesn't mean we've received it. We have to decide to trade our life for his. And that's available for you right now today, whether you're on the stream or in the house, that you could surrender to Jesus. And he says, I will give you then a gift of my Holy Spirit that will allow you to do the things that we're talking about. Otherwise, this doesn't mean anything for you. Otherwise, you're gonna be working real hard and you're always gonna be frustrated. I have no idea why I'm an SEC football coach right now, but I am, what it has to do with working harder. So if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you're ready, say I'm ready to just say I give up because I've tried all the stuff and none of it makes sense. And I know you're out there. I know I'm talking to some people that really need to hear this. I want to lead you into a prayer. It's just a simple prayer. You can pray it quietly right where you are. I promise this is a, Jesus will hear you and he'll answer your prayer. You can just repeat after me. Jesus, I come to you and I surrender myself. I ask that you would forgive my sins and cleanse me from the inside out. Thank you for dying on the cross to offer me life. So today, I give you my life. I ask that you would give me the gift of your Holy Spirit and make all things new. Fill my heart and life with new meaning and purpose. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Amen. So if you prayed that prayer, I would love for you to let someone else know that you know that walks with Jesus. And if you're here, we'd love to hear about it. Our prayer teams will be up front in a minute. Let one of those folks know. You can let one of us on staff know. But we want to help you grow. And just as a, a little preview This October, we're going to run something called the Spiritual Boot Camp. We've never done it before, but we're really excited about it. And especially if you're new to the faith, this would be a great way for you to be able to get a coach and be able to move forward. So we'll tell you more about that in the coming weeks. Why don't you stand as we close? quick announcement that I totally forgot earlier that's really important, and that is... um, we're excited about worshiping all together as a church family uh, in one service, and we decided as a board to to move to one service at 10 a.m. starting on September 12th. So that'll be a little bit of a change for you, but we just really believe in this season it's important for us to all be together. And so we got plenty of space in here. We're not going to have a problem with space. If, in the, if you feel the need or you want to space out, we've got the room here. But We feel like in this season, that's really important. Before COVID, we were actually one service. And so it's been so long, I forgot that that was the case. I had to be reminded. But so that's a little bit of an announcement for you. Jesus, as we learn to trust you more, as we learn to surrender to you more, I pray that we would grow in self-control, that we would keep our eyes on you, Jesus, and that you would become more and more real and true and powerful in our lives. I pray that as we fall more and more in love with you, that you would make the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. And so would you help us not to see this as a rule to go and do more, but to rest more in who you are and to surrender to you and follow you, Holy Spirit. So thank you for this church family. I am so blessed to be a part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for coming. Prayer folks, if you'd come down forward, we'd love to pray for you. Any need you might have, let us know if you, made your, if you gave your life to Jesus. And otherwise, we'll see you next week.